morning, and thank you, Rosie. Thank you, Gordon. For the past uh, couple of months, we've been thinking about our relationship with God, our relationship with each other as Christians, and our relationship and our engagement with our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues and those who are not yet Christians. So we've been using this model up, in, out. And recently, we've been looking at the out dimension, and we've been discovering that when Christians step out, often beyond their comfort zones, even their prejudices, and whenever they reach out to all kinds of different people, then God transforms lives and the church grows. And so that's been the story of Acts so far. And today we're going to read about additional growth as more people join in, as the circle, as we were thinking about last week, as the circle widens even further. But before we turn to Acts 16, I want us to pick up the story from where we left off last week. Because in the space of a few verses, right at the end of chapter 15, we're confronted by a really sad and tragic situation. It's an incident that reminds us how the in aspect of our Christian lives, our relationships with one another, are put to the test at times. They do come under pressure. Our relationships with one another in here can be difficult and tense on occasions. One of the things I love about Scripture, and, and we've talked about this before, is that it doesn't edit out the tough and the messy bits. It doesn't airbrush the key characters. But instead, it records specific details of the story and their story that can leave you somewhat disappointed, maybe even disillusioned. But maybe the fact that Scripture doesn't gloss over these less than impressive aspects is an encouragement. Because we discover that just like you and I, certain heroes and giants of the Christian faith were human. They didn't always get it right. They had feet of clay. Their relationships with one another in the church were strained at times. They did get wound up by other people. So let's read the last six verses of Acts chapter 15. It's page 1111 in the Pew Bibles, and as we often do at Windsor, we'll stand for the public reading of God's Word. Let's stand together. Acts 15, and we're starting at verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the Word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Grab a seat. Let me read you one writer's comments on these verses, and it sums it up brilliantly. 
There is no point beating about the bush with this one. There are times when you really want to knock people's heads together and tell them not to be so pig-brained, though actually most pigs wouldn't dream of behaving like this. And I imagine that every generation of readers has felt that about Paul and Barnabas at this point. In fact, if anyone suggests that Luke writing this book is trying to whitewash early church history or make out that the apostles were fledged angels, they should think again. This is a shameful episode. And the fact that it stands in Scripture should not make us afraid to say so. This is not one of Paul and Barnabas' best moments. The fact that Paul will go on later on in the New Testament to write about the importance of humility and gentleness and about the dangers of anger and discord. And, and Paul wrote about those things more than anybody else. The fact that he did probably means that as he looked back on this incident, he probably felt a certain degree of shame and regret. Yet what it does reveal is that there will be times when our relationships in here are stretched, pressurized, even with people you generally like. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that Barnabas, the encourager, was standing up for Paul, speaking up for him, urging the brothers to accept the one-time persecutor. And yet now, there's a rupture in their friendship. They appear to be at loggerheads. And so there will be, maybe, people in here. Just take a look around. There will be people in here who will do your head in at times. There will be moments when you could see another brother or sister in Christ far enough. But you know something? That's just part and parcel of family life. It often goes with the territory of spending time and rubbing shoulders with other people. Now, in saying that and raising this, I'm not justifying it. I'm not excusing bad behavior or attitudes. I'm not suggesting we adopt the mindset that says, well, if the Apostle Paul struggled with another Christian, then it's okay for me to lose it and get frustrated with him or her. No. Our relationships in here really do matter. Why? Because according to Jesus, it's by our love for one another. That is what identifies who we are and whose we are. But at the same time, if anyone expects this church to be sweetness and light all the time, plain sailing, totally harmonious and peaceful, you're probably going to end up disappointed, shocked, or rattled. There was, and please, I hope you heard this, there was a huge row a sharp disagreement, a huge row in Acts 15, and people walked away from one another. Relationships were fractured, and it still happens in the church. And it could happen here. 
And so we need to pray. We need to pray and we need to play our part. And we need to be careful about what we say and what we think and the attitudes that we hold towards one another. We as a church are facing some big decisions and challenges with regard to money, long-term finances, relocation, a substantial refurbishment project, and all of those, and in all of those, there will more than likely be moments whenever opinions could differ and ideas may clash, excuse the pun, views may vary, and relationships are put to the test. And how each of us reacts, and how we respond to one another, how we speak and how we behave will be critical. And so we have got to ensure that Scripture and the fruit of the Spirit informs and shapes our relationships. Other ways, like Paul and Barnabas, we could get it badly wrong. Let's move on. Let's go into chapter 16. In chapter 16, we meet for the first time, certainly not the last time, a young man called Timothy. Timothy's from a mixed marriage. His mom's Jewish, his dad's Greek. And one of the other first things we're told about Timothy, apart from the fact that he is a believer, is that he's well thought of, he's highly respected, he's admired by other believers. The in aspect of Timothy's relationships were healthy. He hasn't fallen out with anyone. Paul clearly sees potential in Timothy, and so Paul wants to take Timothy with him on his mission trip. But given all that we said last week, and given all that happened at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, verse 3 of chapter 16 does jar. More than a bit, it actually jars a lot. Looks like you could definitely accuse Paul of rank inconsistency. In fact, you could call him a hypocrite. Let's read from verses 1 to 4 of Acts 16. You can hang on to your seats. No, you can't. Let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. <laughs> I can't talk about consistency and then be inconsistent. Right. <laughs> Verse 1, 16. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mom was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The, brother, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Grab a seat again. Right, so if you were here last week, this will kind of make more sense. But anyway, Timothy's dad was Greek, means Timothy wasn't circumcised as a baby. And so Paul, and, and it seems from the text here that Paul performed the surgery himself. Paul circumcises Timothy. Why? Well, to quote verse 4, because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. What is that about? What is that about? Is that not a prime example of a Jesus plus mentality that we said was a danger last week? Well, yes and no. At one level, this does seem odd to say the least, maybe even extreme, especially if you're Timothy. And the only explanation I can offer, or the only way of seeing this 
coming so soon after that big hoo-ha in Jerusalem. It's a technical word. The only way I see in this is that Paul circumcised Timothy not because he needed to be circumcised in order to become a full member of God's family, because that would have been an example of Jesus plus thinking. But because it was going to be much easier to advance Paul's mission and message, the gospel, if all his traveling companions were able to be seen as kosher Jews. Now, Paul, here's, here's the dilemma we have here. Paul didn't always adopt this practice or mindset. So, for example, in Galatians, we read about Titus coming to faith. He was an uncircumcised Gentile. And therefore, some of the hardliners in Jerusalem insisted he should go under the knife. This time, Paul refused, insisting that it wasn't necessary. So how do you get your head round Paul's thinking in Acts 16 with Timothy? Well, in addition to what I've already said, I think you've got to flick over to this comment that will be on the screen in 1 Corinthians 9 in order to make some sense of it. These are familiar words, but they kind of shed more light on what's going on here. I have made myself, says Paul, a slave to everyone, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people in order, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. You see, Paul was willing to go a certain distance on non-defining issues. In order to build bridges, in order to create opportunities, in order to gain access into people's lives, in order to gain trust, in order to meet people where they were so that he could more effectively share the gospel and save, or rather, see different people from different backgrounds rescued and saved. Paul did all he could to identify with people on their turf, in their world, in order to introduce them to Jesus. And I suppose the question and the challenge for us is this, how far are we willing to go? How far? What hurdles are we willing to dismantle and clear away? What are we prepared to do in order to be better equipped to reach and disciple people? How adaptable is Windsor Baptist? How potentially misunderstood are we up for in order to save some? We're not talking about compromise or disobedience for the sake of the gospel. That would be madness if I stood up here and encouraged that. But we may have to cross a few lines, step outside of a few comfort zones, risk giving the wrong impression. But if our motive is right, if our heart's desire is to save some, then let's become all things to all people. Let's be willing to serve others to that kind of level. 
Let's, to echo Paul, make ourselves a slave to everyone in order to win as many as possible. What, what might that mean for you this week? To make yourself a slave to your colleagues in work, to your neighbors, to the people you sit beside at university. What might that mean for you? The one slight issue here in Acts 16 is that uh, Paul does this to Timothy. (laughs) But we can only assume that Timothy had bought into it. And Timothy's up for the inconvenience and the pain and the discomfort for the sake of the gospel. I suppose the question is, are we? Are we up for the inconvenience, the pain, and the discomfort of being all things to all people in order to save some? Paul and team have plans to take the gospel to the province of Asia. We're moving on. To take the gospel to the province of Asia and to Bithynia. But but God has other plans. And if nothing else, this next little bit that we're going to read and look at reminds us that as and when we reach out, it's not our mission we're going on. It's not the church's mission. It's God's. As Rowan Williams and others have said, mission is finding out what God is doing and joining in. We serve a missionary God, and we are called to participate with God. We are called to become His partners in His mission. Paul and friends decided they were going to head in a certain direction. They were going to head to a particular people group. But look at verses 6 and 7. Paul and his companions traveled throughout Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. The Holy Spirit stopped them from preaching in Asia. The Spirit of Jesus erected a roadblock that prevented them from entering Bithynia. Now, how the Holy Spirit did either of those two things, I have no idea, and the text doesn't tell us. But all we do know is that the divine satnav redirected Paul and his team. The missionary God had another route in mind. The missionary God was going to do something else somewhere else. And so God reroutes Paul via a vision. God doesn't just stop and block, he redirects. He opens other doors. He creates further opportunities. And whenever, like Paul, we are willing to go, and that's the essential bit, then the challenge is let's discern where God is calling and taking us, and then let's be obedient to his leading. One question we should continually ask is this, where is the Spirit calling us? Where is God at work in this community? Where is God at work in your life, in your workplace, in your university, in your college, in your neighborhood? Where is God at work? And then join in. Partner with him. And granted, a God-given vision would be really good. But maybe we already have one. Go and make disciples of all nations and people groups. Go and seek to be a church without walls. Go and relocate yourselves on the Lisburn Road. 
Paul gets a nighttime vision from a man from Macedonia who's calling him, begging him to come and help. And Paul immediately, when he hears that, when he gets that, when he's redirected, when he's rerouted, Paul packs up and moves out. The obedience and the willingness to go where God is leading is a great example. And God hasn't changed. He's still a missionary God, and his missionary purposes are cosmic in scope, concerned with the restoration of all things, the establishment of shalom, the renewal of creation, and the coming of the kingdom, as well as the redemption of fallen humanity and the building of the church. That is the mission of God that we are invited to join in on. One more incident. Verses 11 to 15. Paul and team then head for Macedonia. And they eventually arrive in Philippi, which we read is a leading city in the region. Sabbath day rolls round. And it seems there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. It's too early days. So Paul goes looking for and expects to find, so he must have got wind off, a place of prayer on the outskirts of the town. And what they find is gathered there is a group of people, mainly women, who are often ahead of the game when it comes to prayer. And Luke then introduces us in Acts chapter 16 to one of these women, a lady called Lydia. And very quickly, we discover three things about her, where she's from, what she does, and where she's at in relation to God. So where she's from, Lydia is from Thyatira. That in itself is fascinating because Thyatira is in Asia, the very province where the Spirit had stopped Paul from going. But clearly part of this, as it turns out, was because Lydia from Thyatira wasn't in Asia. She was in Philippi. And so Paul had a divine appointment with Lydia in Philippi, the mission of God. Find out what God's doing Join in. Love it. Love it. Second thing we learn about Lydia is that she's an influential businesswoman. She's a dealer in purple cloth. In other words, she's working at the top end of the market. Lydia was the Karen Millen of Northern Greece. And if you've no idea what that means, just ask someone afterwards. I live with four women. The gospel, none of them shop in Karen Millen. The gospel... <laughs> The gospel, what we saw, is for the rich and the poor. That's what we discover here. It's for the well-heeled and the financially strapped. And we need to make sure, Windsor Baptist, that we follow God's call to reach out and connect with people from all socioeconomic backgrounds and circumstances. The third thing we learn about Lydia is that she's a worshiper of God. She's a God-fearer. She's a Cornelius-like individual. Someone who was actively searching and seeking. And what we also discover is that God's already at work in her life. Question. Did Lydia come to that place of prayer regularly? Or did it just so happen that she turned up by the river on that particular day? Coincidence or providence? destiny. Who knows? God knows. But as Lydia draws alongside a community of faith, and you see, whenever someone is seeking for answers, 
That's often a critical link in the chain. They go to church. They spend time in a worshiping community. And as this lady listened carefully, we read, as Paul shared the message, and again, that openness and that willingness to engage and to consider is significant. So as she drew alongside a community of faith, as she listened carefully to the message of Jesus, then we read, the Lord opened her heart to respond, and she was baptized. Do you know, ultimately, and we must never forget this, ultimately, salvation is a work of God. It's God who unlocks hearts. It's God who rescues lives. It's God who changes people's past, present, future. But the links in the chain are so important and worth noting. The fact there were women praying by a river on the Sabbath was key. The fact they were an open, welcoming community to others, including a wealthy businesswoman, was vital. The fact that Paul shared the message, that he opened his mouth, that he spoke of Jesus was necessary. And it all culminated in the conversion and baptism of Lydia. God saves. But here's the bit. We all have a part to play. We are his co-workers, his partners, his witnesses. I don't understand why God involves us. No clue whatsoever. Because we are human. We have feet of clay. We do get it wrong. We do fall out. Sometimes it's not by our love for one another that people know who we are or whose we are. But somehow God has chosen to empower us to be his witnesses. And someone said the church is the hope of the world. God saves, but he's invited us to be his partners. And so as we finish this morning, let me leave you with four challenges. Four challenges to Windsor Baptist. So if you're visiting this morning, it's great to see you. Don't have to do these things. <laughs> no, you actually do. I'll come back. Four challenges to Windsor Baptist. Let's be committed to good relationships. Let's guard against fractured friendships. Secondly, let's be prepared to serve in order to save whatever the implications. Windsor, let's be willing to go and join in on God's mission wherever he leads and takes us. And let's be an open, welcoming community that shares the message of Jesus with others from all backgrounds. And please do, this is for everyone, please do personalize this because Windsor Baptist is you and me. And therefore, I've got to be committed to my relationship with you. I've got to be prepared to serve in order to save. I have got to be willing to find out what God is doing, to discern what God is doing and join in with God. And I've got to make sure that I am open and I'm welcoming, and that I share the message of Jesus with whoever I come into contact with. May it be so, Lord. May it be so.